welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We bring on current associate head coach for the Western Michigan Broncos, Pat Fershweiler, the alma mater of a one Jeffrey Lavecchio as well. So this was an awesome, awesome conversation. Uh, First comes from Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, He played in the USHL before going on to Western Michigan. Uh, Played a lot of years of of professional hockey before getting into coaching. Actually, his first coaching job was starting a uh, program called Russell Stover that was based out of Kansas City, Missouri. After that, he went on to coach at Western Michigan as an assistant. Uh, Then he went on to Grand Rapids in the AHL, eventually to Detroit for the Red Wings in the NHL, and now he is back coaching at his alma mater at Western Michigan as an associate head coach under Andy Murray. So this was an unreal conversation, but before we do get over to first, let's bring on an unreal guy in Jeffrey Lavecchio. So Vex, what's going on today, man? Fight on, fight on for Western. Take the puck down the ice, score a goal. Yeah, it's about time we got a Bronco on this podcast, bro. <laughs> is that legit? Are you, you're serious? You know this is not oh, the I'm first s- Bronco we've had on our podcast, by the way. Well, I mean, I mean a current Bronco, like a current coach we've had on current Cornell coaches. I want a current Bronco, and who I'm is, stoked who about is it. the last Bronco we've had on here? Was it? Was it? Uh, who were it? Dude, I don't know. We've done 101 of these. Who was the last Bronco we <laughs> had Brex, on? Brent Brecky. Well, I was always going to say Brex, but I couldn't remember if, uh, oh no, we did Schaefer way in the beginning, yeah, right? He was a coach and then, Western. Yeah. So I was thinking him, but Brex was after him. Have we, have we had one more on or no, just two? I don't know. That's your school, man. Yeah. Uh, days, run, <laughs> days, run, days run into each other. Can I, can I actually rough. ask you, is that a legitimate song that you just sang there? Yeah, dude, that's our. That was like the fight song for after we'd win, come together, we'd sing our fight song after every game in the locker room. And it's just take the puck down and score. No, like is there so more there's, to it? There's, there's oh yeah, dude. It's oh like a okay. Song. I, was like, <laughs> I wasn't gonna sing the whole thing. I have a terrible. <laughs> I have the body of a Greek god, but I have the voice of a screeching car. So I wasn't gonna. <laughs> So make our listeners listen to my awful voice the entire time. Oh. Only time my voice is good is with a bunch of drinks and a karaoke stage. All right. So I have seen that. I've witnessed ironic <laughs> by Alanis Morissette more times than I care to recount. Yeah, baby. Sean Muncy shout out. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Muncy? Um, so dude, so we just got off the phone with, or not the phone. We just got off the zoom with, uh, with Fersh. that, uh, this, this will be in our top 10. Yeah, I knew we it. We just went through uh, our top ten. This will be in our top ten. Yeah, this was a this was a just a we talked on about so many different things: playing, coaching, life after hockey. You know the stuff that hockey builds in a person, in a in a kid that's going to help them in life after hockey. Like we touched on so many different subjects in this one and first is a great very articulate speaker uh he threw some jabs at you and right away right away first five seconds i get it first five seconds yeah. he just threw you right under the bus and i <laughs> loved it that was pretty good <laughs> it was good it not was gonna real. lie not gonna he lie even peeled his, he even peeled his tarp in the middle of the of the episode i'm sure you'll cut it out but my god like 
Broncos. We stick together, baby. <laughs> is that like a, a common theme for all Western Michigan hockey players? Is you, just the the need to always have your shirt off or what? I guess. Although so, he man. wasn't totally we, shirtless. He he just peeled off his top for, I know, for I, a sound check. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I tried to get him to peel all the top off, but he, he didn't want to embarrass the Cornell guy. So I get it. You know, I live with the same thing every day. So, but uh, yeah, man, awesome guest, awesome guy. This was, this was a really fun one. Yeah. So one thing that the listeners are going to absolutely love, he tells an incredible story about Pavel Datsuk. So that was, an, that was really, really cool. Uh, Cause first got the chance to coach him when he was coaching in Detroit for the wings and just a really cool story about him. And then the other thing that I think is really good is like, you know, if you want to play college hockey, you have to listen to this episode. Like if you're a kid that's anywhere between 13 and 20 years old and you want to play college hockey, like this is, this is the episode to listen to. I would agree. I mean, he just gave so much spot on information and he's a guy who is now coaching college hockey. He started a program, a triple A. He started coaching a then double A then started his own triple A program. And within six years had moved on over 50 players to college hockey. Who better are you going to listen to than a guy who started his own triple A program and then moved on 50 players within six years. That is unheard of. That's insane. Yep. And in a small hockey market. And and what was the the theme of what he was and what we were talking about? Uh work hard, sacrifice, uh <laughs> give more, be more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. I mean it's just get better. Just just, just, just get, get better. better, you know. And uh it's funny in this youth hockey world and I'm dealing with it and, and I'm sure a lot of hockey people are dealing with it too. I mean, there's so many bright, shiny things out there that um that can take away from the most important thing, which is getting better. <laughs> get better as a hockey player, get better as a human, and, and that is what's gonna get you to the next level and will also set you up for a lot of things once hockey is, is over. So that, that continual that continual search for improvement and work to get better is uh I mean, it's something we preach so much and I think first did an unreal job of articulating it from a college coach's standpoint and things that are important to them too. Um, and I think it's just, just great, great little tidbits for, for any kid or even any parent that has a kid that wants to play college hockey to, to listen to. Yeah, man. I mean, it's so important the things he said. And if I, like you said, from 13 to 20, if I'm a younger player and my goal is to play past junior, get to juniors, even to just to get to juniors, let alone get past juniors. Yep. This is, this is a must, must listen to episode. And one thing that I've been saying, like that goes along with just get better, trying to break that down even more is I've been saying to my guys, win the day, every day you wake up, win the day, whatever that means. If it's a recovery day, win the recovery day, like do the best you can at recovering. If it's a, you know, you're going in to do like some, you know, vision training, win that vision training, compete against yourself, compete against others, win everything you do. Just focus on winning the next day and the next day, wake up and do that again. That's how you get better every day. Just get better. You know, instead of like being like, well, I got here in 10 months, I got to be here in a year and a half. I got to be here in two years. Like if you just win every day, you're going, you're, you're trajecting upwards. Your trajectory is you know, climbing that mountain. Yeah. You want to know something funny? So Paige, my daughter, first of all, she turns three this week. Can you believe that? Woo-hoo! Little Paigey, three years old. Crazy. Three going on 19. Um, 
But uh, so she loves like digging through the closet and just like, Daddy, we're this. Daddy, we're that. Daddy, we're this. Daddy, we're that. And so she. That explains your wardrobe. (laughs) Well, partly. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So uh, it's it's really interesting because she went into my closet the other day and she brought me out uh, like a Cornell shirt that I had from when I was a player, which I hadn't worn in forever. Just a dry fit shirt that we used to work out in. And you know how like every team they have certain sayings or certain things that they put on their 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 gitch or their gear or their swag. Um, so our, um, one thing, it was our motto for the year and we had it on the back of our shirts was win. And what win was, was W I N what's important now. Right. So it's like, it's exactly what you're talking about. Win the day. Like all you have is today. And, uh, just the fact that you're talking about this and that, you know, Paige, got me that shirt the other day. It just, uh, I totally agree. All you have is today. And if you can maximize whatever you have today, you'll be much better tomorrow. And if you do that every day, you're going to get a heck of a lot better. I absolutely love that. And I literally can't make this up yesterday. So I, I only train a couple of non-hockey athletes over the last couple of years. And, you know, usually only focus on hockey, but I have one family that comes to me where a bunch of their, their sons train with me. So they asked me when I wasn't that busy a few years ago, if I would train their daughter, um, who plays division one field hockey. So she's, she's home right now. And she literally texted me, what you are talking about their team shirt last year at uh, Davidson field hockey, the women's uh, Davidson field hockey, they had on their shirts, cohort C O and heart. And the C O stood for something. So she's asking me, do you have any ideas? And I was, I said like, you know what, with teams, I've always loved alliterations. Like you just said with win. Right. So I was Is that like, alliteration? You know, I don't think that's alliteration. No, because it starts with the same letter. But uh, alliteration <laughs> starts with the same letter. But go. what is that called when it's like? I well, so this this would be an alliteration though because acronym? it starts with the same letter. Is it acronym? Yeah, I guess is that so. The right word? Yeah, I don't know. yeah, acronym. Whatever the word is. Anyways, <laughs> so I said to her, I was like, think uh, in terms of what you just said about Cornell, and I said, here's an example. Wham! W win the day. Said that. A accomplish small goals and manifest our destiny. And like, so then that could be on their shirt. And as they come together as a team, you're like, yelling, like, wham, you know, like, I just thought that would be fun, but it's very similar to what you just said, you know, win the day, get better. And then like those team things, I think for anyone listening, who's never been part of a higher level team, things like that really gel a team. Like we had that in juniors. I still remember it. It was clap. Uh, commitment. L was ludimus because we had a French guy. I don't remember what that means, but that was the L. <laughs> Um, and we went all the way to game six and we lost to, to Lincoln in the finals in the USHL, but like our thing was clap and we had that on necklaces, bracelets, shirts, just like you had win, just like Caitlin had that. So I think that's pretty cool. You brought that up. Well, let, let me ask you this and we kind of get into it with first on, uh, on our conversation, but what getting better every day is not sexy. Right. Like it's not like yeah. a, it's not a marketing tool that can get yeah. people to play for your team or organization or whatever it may be business, you know, whatever. Um, how could you better, I don't know, how could you better market that? Cause like, you know, I see it and we see it all the time in youth hockey and youth sports and all this kind of stuff. There's so much bright, shiny things. That's, that's all there are. They're bright, shiny things and they're not really very much substance. So like, how, how do you, how can you, how can you better promote the fact that what's going to get you to where you want to go is not sexy. It's not sexy at all. It's, it's, it's just elbow grease and hard work and resilience. And just like we're talking about just getting better every day. 
That's such a good question. And if we had the answer, we'd probably be billionaires. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think that's just a culture thing. Like, yeah. like you, you talk about culture more than anyone I've ever met and I love it. Um, and, and it's, you know, I believe in the exact same thing. I've created a culture within my own company that, that is the same that you created at Cornell and as a, as a player and as a coach. And I think it all starts from leadership. Like you have to decide what are the things that I know are going to help as a coach? What are the things that I know are going to help my players to reach where they want to reach? And so instead of focusing on, I want you all to be playing juniors by the end of the year, like that's not really a goal. I mean, you can measure it at the end of the year, but you can't measure that daily, weekly, monthly over the course of the season. Like you can look at somebody and go, you know what? I know you gave your best today. You got better today. Mm -hmm. So it's breaking teaching people to break down their big goals into smaller goals. And I mean, what's the smallest goal you can have freaking win every day. Like, I don't know. I think it just needs to be a culture thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, it was, I mean, it kind of tags along with some of the stuff we were talking about. So Jeff and I, this is one thing that's really cool. And I think we should shout out USA hockey for this. So USA hockey once a week, they reach out to people in the business to, to try and, you know, just to try and get better and try and figure out what's going on in certain parts of the country and figure out ways that, that they can help the service, uh, you know, people around the country when it comes to hockey. And so they reached out to Jeff and I, and we sat on a call with about 20 people, the ADM managers and some of the higher ups within USA hockey. And, um, we talked a lot about that stuff. It's like, just do the best that you can. It, like there's so many external forces that uh, and they even said, you know, they lose a lot of really good people from, you know, being hockey directors and, and coaches at the youth level because they feel like it's not worth it because they understand that they're trying to do their best and get better every day and make the kids get better every day. But there's just so many things that that rail against that, that they're just like, I just can't do it anymore. But if you can just what you're asking your kids to do and focusing on the process and, and getting better. If you can focus on that as a coach or a hockey director as well, and not worry about the noise, you know, I think that's a really, really, really powerful thing that, uh, that I will certainly try to be better at. And, and, you know, hopefully a lot of people out there can too. Yeah, man. And, you know, you brought up your daughter a few minutes ago, Paige turning three this week. And I don't know if anybody's seen this video yet. I don't know if you only put it on Twitter or if you put it on Twitter and Instagram, but he sent, Tove sent this video in our family group chat and it was of his three-year-old daughter cheering on and clapping for his infant daughter, uh, rolling over from her stomach to her back. And Paige, his, his older daughter is there cheering her on every time she rolls over. And then she would roll her little sister back over on her stomach. And then she'd try and roll over. As soon as she did it, Paige would go nuts. And it was like three or four times in the video. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever because you've obviously created like a positive culture in your house to have Paige want to do that. Like she didn't just learn to cheer on her sister. And then that made her want to roll over again and again and again. Like it was kids showing a culture and how important it is. And I just found this like 30 second video you sent in our family group chat to be very powerful. And it made me go into work that day and work harder, like from watching a three-year-old. You know, I, I cool. just, I, I thought that was cool. So if anybody hasn't watched that, go to Toast Twitter or Instagram and it gives you perspective. That's cool. I never, I would not have intersected all that stuff that you just talked about, but 
Yeah, bro. That's what we're doing. (laughs) I mean, I loved it. I loved it. Well, culture, I mean, you know how much I love talking about that and stuff. And one of the things that dropped this week, um, or will, no, no, it's dropping this week. Sometimes I get, I get mixed up because we're talking about things and this ends up coming out the week after, but it's out there right now. I got the chance to do a zoom call with Mike Schaefer from Cornell and Brad Berry from North Dakota, uh, who were the co-coaches of the year in college hockey this year. And, and, uh, you know, I, I got to ask him 10 questions. That's the thing, 10 questions with these guys. And it's amazing how much they talked about. It didn't matter what the question was. Like, honestly, I feel like every question went back to people and culture and process you know, like that's the thing that makes you great or doesn't if you don't focus on, on those kinds of things. And I could have asked them what the weather was like today. And they could be like, well, you know, when people are around that are good and they focus on what they should focus on and, and everybody does that to create a good culture, you know, usually it's a little bit warmer outside. <laughs> so so um, it's so true, man. And uh, the culture that we're trying to provide, the culture that you're trying to provide, the, the culture that first, obviously what they have going on in Western Michigan right now, I mean, they got a really good thing going on there too. And uh, this, this was just a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for everybody to hear this and uh, hopefully get some more people excited to uh, look into joining the WMU Broncos. <laughs> for sure. Well, before we do get over to first, uh, we obviously have some thank yous here. And uh, Vex, you want to thank uh, your Train Heroic crew and uh, your Gel Sticks crew all at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about the guys over at Gel Sticks and what they've done for me, for you, for the podcast. Uh, you know, it started off just just talking to them on LinkedIn, and then they started showing me their products, and I was like, oh my god, I absolutely love this thing. So many applications uh, that you can use with the Gel Sticks, from learning to stick handle, learning to shoot, working on your forearms, your your grip strength, all these things. I use them in the gym uh, as a way to to train with them. Actually, I had a 14 year NHL veteran that's using my training program on Train Heroic right now, and his what his comment on yesterday's session was, I absolutely love the wrist work with the Gel Stick. Like loved it. My my wrists feel good. My forearms feel strong. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, the, you know, thank you to gel sticks and our code. If you go to gelsticks.com, G E L S T X.com, uh, you can use the code think tank one word to get a discount, uh, for being a loyal listener to our podcast. And then, uh, train heroic want to thank them. Another sponsor of the podcast because they, uh, they approached me and I, you know, talked to them about putting my programs online and it is by far the cleanest training app I have ever used. Any of my guys have ever used. I have pros in 12 separate countries, 12 pros in 12 or 12 separate countries of, of guys using this training program. And, you know, you can use it all over the world and it's just, it's tracks everything every workout every rep every set every weight every timed session you just you, you can't go wrong with it man it's it's so sick videos of everything um so we got to thank them too because they're helping us help a lot of hockey players right now in this time of need so thank you to both of them and uh check them out guys Absolutely. And thank you again to all of our listeners that are out there. This is going to be a fantastic episode. It's a little bit of a longer episode for sure. Like we, we just, I don't, we didn't necessarily get off topic, but we just kept talking about things that were important. And then all of a sudden I look at the clock and I'm like, oh man, we're an hour in. I still have like all these questions I want to ask, yeah. you know? Um, so those uh, are the good ones though. That's yeah. how you know it's good when you're like, ah, I have so many more I want to ask, but we did so much good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you guys are really 
really going to enjoy this one. And thank you guys so much for supporting our podcast. Uh, again, over a hundred episodes in right now, and uh, just the feedback has been overwhelming uh, in terms of the positivity uh, and the reach that we're having. So uh, again, if you can help us to to help more people by sharing us, however you can, whether it's through your email chains or through ratings and reviews on your Apple Podcasts or iTunes uh, or or faxing it around like Jeff does, you know, uh, that would be great. Or, or buying Tove's new Hockey Think Tank shirts. What's up? <laughs> we do have shirts on our website. So if people want some Hockey Think Tank shirts, you're so much better at this than I am. <laughs> um, uh, we do have shirts on our website. So uh, if you do want some Hockey Think Tank swag, we got a shirt now. So go to the thehockeythinktank.com. It's under shop. I think, and uh, and grab the <laughs> grab the hose. <laughs> You're an idiot. Uh, I know I am, um, but uh, really appreciate all your support for what we're doing. You're going to love this episode with associate head coach for the Western Michigan Broncos, Pat Fershweiler. So, without further ado, here we go with Pat Fershweiler. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast. A Bronco, not only a former Bronco, but a current Bronco as well in uh, assistant coach. Actually, you might even be an associate head coach. What are you right now? Associate head coach. Associate head coach. Uh, it's bad bad on me as the host. Associate head coach for Western Michigan, Pat Fershweiler. Fersh, how are we doing today? Oh, doing great, guys. You? Doing good. Always, I'm doing- always a good day when you wake up to three feet of or three inches of snow in April. You know, <laughs> it might feel like three feet to you, Tove. <laughs> oh, 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 you can't, do it. you can't start out that way. It's, a, it's two Broncos. We're versus one big red. Though. Oh man! Uh, okay, this that's got what Broncos do. <laughs> that's what Broncos do. We went Boom. prison rules right off the start. So, well, that's I it. messed up. I messed up already, so I deserved it. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. Well, first, we uh, we like to take it way back here and uh, kind of get a little bit of a sense of how you fell in love with this great game of hockey, and uh, you grew up in uh, the great state of Minnesota, out in the Rochester area. Uh, what was it like growing up out there, and and uh, who were your influences that got you involved with the game? You know, honestly, like Minnesota is is I, I think the last like pure place for hockey in 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 the U.S. because there's there's rinks everywhere, there's outdoor rinks everywhere. Hockey is still you know I'll quote unquote affordable there. Um, rinks are city owned, um, so they're not trying to make a profit, and generally they lose money, and the city is okay with that because hockey is a way of life there. And they just think, uh, you know, it, it's a service that everyone should have. So honestly, growing up, I, I didn't know very many people that didn't play hockey for at least a portion of their life. So, you know, it's just bred into the culture in Minnesota. And so I grew up, I have a brother who's seven years older than me. I'm the youngest of six kids, four sisters in the middle. So we literally all played hockey at some point. And, and um, every day we'd there at a, I had an outdoor rink three blocks from my house. We would, uh, you know, my brother and I would throw our skates over our stick, bring our gloves, walk down there, play till dark, and, uh, you know, then walk home. It was it was great. And, you know, some of his, you know, the, and the outdoor rinks here, you know, in Minnesota, are, they're well-kept. They Zambonium at night. They, there's lights. There's warming houses. Like, it, it's a real, it's a real sheet of ice you get to play with, and, and you got to kind of, you know, you go down there and figure things out. I was mainly playing with my brother's friends who were seven years older than me. So you had to kind of learn how to survive down there. And, you know, it turns out some of those, some of his friends were real good hockey players. Guy Goslin played in the Olympics, guys like that. So, yeah. 
That's cool. So how much do you attribute your success as a hockey player to being the youngest of six? Because Jeff and I are the oldest of our families, uh, but you know Shafe very, very well. Coached yeah. against him, played for him at Western, all that kind of stuff. He's the youngest of nine. Um, and, and I know how competitive he is. <laughs> so uh, I, I love asking that question. Like being the youngest of six, is that something you talked about the survival mode? Do you attribute that to, to your success as a hockey player? I, you know, I probably do. There's probably an inner toughness that has to come with that youngest kid, um, you know, and some survival uh, instincts there for sure. But I, you know, I, I mean, I had a great life, a great set of parents and, and, and uh, great siblings. So, you know, we, we were certainly a competitive family. Um, everyone was involved in sports, all the sports. I have no idea how my parents did it. It was six kids in seven years. So there was a set of, a set of twin daughters in there, but it was uh, my brother's literally seven years older than me and there's six of us. So, I, I mean, can you imagine at, at seven, you have a no, seven year old no, and, and a one year old and they're sitting, how, how would you survive? I, I, my mother's a saint. Uh, and my, you know, my father, I don't know even how they got us all to practice or, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy thought to do. I could, I'm sure no one could do it nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. Well, it's pretty cool. And uh, I feel like there's a few different mirrors from, from my career and your career. And you got to play junior hockey in your hometown in Rochester as well for the, the Mustangs. And, uh, you know, I was able to play junior hockey in Chicago where I grew up. Um, what was that like being able to play juniors in, in Rochester? You know, it was an interesting time, Toph, because it was right on the verge of people going to the USHL. And okay. in Minnesota high school back then, no one, um, it, w- it was kind of looked down upon to have to go play junior rather than go right to college. Okay. I'm older than you, so that's, that feels like a weird thing to say, I'm sure. But um, it was actually my best. I actually went to the University of Minnesota Duluth right out of high school. And they had, they told me they were going to redshirt. And so I went to Duluth and, you know, I was, I was five eleven. I was about 170 pounds. And so they said, we want you to train here. We want you to learn our systems. Well, you know, you're not going to play the first year, but I said, Hey, great. I'm, I'm, I'm not ready. I'll stay, you know, and I even told them I'll stay right here in my hometown. I can play in the USHL right here. And they said, no, we want you here. And I went up there and we're about nine. They're on the quarter system. So about somewhere near the end of the first quarter, they called me in the office and said, hey, we're going to, we're going to cut you. And I'm like, well, I didn't cut me from what? I'm not even trying out. I, you know what I mean? I, I, I told you I wasn't ready, you know? And uh, so um, it was a weird uh, time, you know, I said, Hey, don't worry, go back and play. And, and, you know, for a year and we'll, we'll look at bringing you back. And um, so anyway, I came back to play junior from there, but it was a, it was a great, um, a great, great, experience for me and i'm sure you have the same experience tof i I think beneficial for every kid if they get a chance to play junior hockey physically you get to mature mentally for sure you get to grow up you get to mature you get to survive uh there's a toughness bred into it you're way more uh prepared to go to college so i played another i played a year and a half essentially in the ushl and then by the time you know by that time i had schools all over me and i i was lucky enough to to find an opportunity at Western Michigan. And by that time I was, you know, six, two, almost 200 and, and fully ready to play and contribute at the college level. 
That's interesting. Well, I do want to get to your time at Western. Actually, I don't, but Jeff does. Um, <laughs> well said. Um, but before that, you know, now you're a college coach and and you're obviously steeped in the process right now. And, and one of the things, it's it's obviously a lot different now than when you were there where pretty much everybody goes and plays one, probably two years of junior hockey now. And a lot of what I'm doing and what we're doing on the podcast is just trying to, to educate people on that path. To, to college hockey and, and how there is so much benefit now to going in a little bit later, being a little bit more prepared me, uh, mentally, physically, maturity, maturity wise, all that kind of stuff. So as, as a college coach, what would you say to, you know, some of the families and some of the kids out there that, that truly want to play college hockey? Is there any kind of advice that you think is really important in how it pertains to junior hockey and how it goes? If you can, everyone calm down and trust the process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you see it or hear it all the time, but calm down and trust the process. We are out there watching, looking, and we, if you're a good enough player to play college hockey, you will be found. You are not being missed. If you're not an early commit, that's okay. You know, I, I committed after the national tournament uh, in the, when I played. So we have late commits that have success. We have early commits that have success, early commits that fail, late commits that fail. We, everyone needs to calm down. Your timeline is not the same as your line mates, your teammates, or somebody else that you know. It's a different timeline. Every timeline is, is, is individualistic. It's your timeline. So just keep working as hard as you can. You have to chase it. You've got to be have an extraordinary work ethic. Work at your game, work off the ice, work on the ice, be a listener to improve, right? Day-to-day -day improvement, the best thing you can do, you keep improving, somebody will find you, you will reach your goal. And, and everyone understand, not everyone, unfortunately, can play Division I college hockey. But you, if everyone's goal was to have a great college hockey experience, I think most competitive players can do that. Is that at a club you know, you can go play a club at the University of Oklahoma and you're going to feel like a big deal. You're going to have a great college hockey experience. You can go play Division Three at lots of places and have a great college hockey experience. If you're lucky enough to play Division One, I, I think that great college hockey experience is built right in there. But whatever the right level is, continue to play, continue to have passion for it, be patient and trust the timeline. Love that. First, like you articulated that so well. And I was on a podcast yesterday that Tolf did last week, I think, Sports Dad Hubs podcast, a parent out of St. Louis, and he listens to all our podcasts, and he's asking that question still and, and trying to get it out to his listeners. But, like, right, this, right. Is, this is episode, like, 100 and, you know, one, I've two, or three for us. Right. So, 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 like, we say this on probably every single podcast. <laughs> <laughs> However... <laughs> Every single time I talk to a parent or, or a parent DMs me on Twitter or Instagram, yeah. they ask that same question. And, and it's like, we, we just, we keep saying it, like, look in the mirror, win the day, get better today. There's tons of opportunities. Don't look around you. Jo little Johnny, little Joey, what are they just get better. But like people keep freaking out about it as a college coach, you just articulated it so well, but is there something that maybe youth coaches can say to their parenting to their parents and to the kids that that will help get that through or is that just maybe you as a parent is that just something kind of you're always you're just trying so hard to help your kids that it's just always going to be there 
Well, you know, Jeff and Tofan, and, and in youth sports now, the, the money invested and the time invested is so high that there's an expectation of returns on that at the college level. And that has nothing to do with it because things have gotten more expensive and, and there's time invested. Isn't, I mean, sometimes my, both my daughters play sports and I mean, they, they play locally and I'm, I'm excited that they're not on the couch and that they're out exercising and, and in a competitive environment with, and learning to work within a team. And those are my expectations. So to, to, if I was to talk to coaches out there and I was certainly in youth sports, I started coaching midget hockey. So the first thing I did every year was try to manage and project realistic expectations of what is going to come from that year. And I certainly, you know, as my, I ran a midget AAA program, it was real successful. And I lost kids every year because I wouldn't make false promises. <laughs> I say, here's what you're going to get. You're going to, you know, you're, we're going to work you real hard. You're going to get better at hockey. You're going to get better off the ice. We're going to, we're going to make sure that you succeed in school. Um, and I talked about that, that you were going to get you a college hockey experience, but sure enough, every year, well, this coach, uh, in Chicago or wherever it was said, guaranteed me I'm going to play in the USHL next year. And he guaranteed me a college scholarship. And I said, well, I would go there. You know, I, <laughs> they must be better at coaching than me. I, I can't guarantee that. But what I can do is, is guarantee you realistic things. And, and I'm going to probably under promise and over deliver where um, some of the other guys are over-promising and under-delivering, and then that creates, you know, that creates problems afterwards. That's so funny. I feel like where you were at that point is kind of where I am, just taking over this youth organization now, um, where we've already lost kids to exactly what you're talking about. Yes. The, the bright lights of, you know, playing for five weekends of exposure rather than actually becoming a better hockey player. And I've gotten to the point, where, you know, all you can do really is rather than stress out about it, you just do a good job. And yeah. whoever the kids are that you have, you know, they're going to get better. No <laughs> you surround them with good coaches. You surround them with a good environment where they're going to get better. Like those kids at the end of the day are going to be the ones that will surpass the ones that go for the bright lights, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, I think something too, Vex, this kind of goes to your question, should almost do a documentary of an assistant coach in college hockey and what their day-to-day -day is like, you know, getting to the, look at my phone bill. <laughs> look at how many calls I make during a day to people all over the country. Look at how much time I'm spending on the road and not just at these big exposure showcases, right. but on these one-off games because we like somebody because we heard a tip from somebody in Richmond, British Columbia, or, you know, anywhere. And right. uh, like the, 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 the nest that we have is so far and wide. And I feel like if people understood a little bit more of what like we do as college coaches on a day-to-day -day basis and understand like, <laughs> what it's like for us in that kind of life, maybe they'd be like, okay, uh, yeah, maybe there's four weekends of the year that I thought were the most important weekends ever. Right. And my career is over. If I don't play well in those four weekends, it's like, no, like there's a lot more that goes into it right. and you just got to get better. We'll find you. <laughs> you, uh, it is an interesting thing. One of the most interesting things I had is, and a great life lesson for me was, was my last year of pro. I played over in England 
um, for the London Knights. And, and before the season started over there, the Anschutz group owned us and they had brought um, a Berlin team in, a Czech team in, uh, five teams that they owned in Europe at Manchester. And they, they flew them into, into Berlin and, and we had a little tournament amongst the teams that they owned. Well, um, they had brought the LA Kings coaching staff over and, and scouting staff as well. And they were having their preseason meetings during that time. And Robbie Laird was their, uh, was their head amateur scout at the time. And, you know, I I'd met him throughout the years and, and I know he'd watched me play. And I just said, Hey, Robbie, you know, I'm, I'm 31 years old now. I, I know I'm not going to play in the national hockey league, but what, what kept me from getting a chance to play? And he said, well, you know, funny enough, you should ask first. We, we took, we picked one player from each team who we had reports on NHL reports on. And we, you know, we put them in here and kind of compared them. And, and sure enough that here was, you know, LA's break it down size, hockey sense, competitiveness, blah, 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 blah. And, and how they break down players. And, and here was seven re- game reports that they had on that they had on me and Robbie had on me and I'm reading him and I'm boy, I'm like, boy, he nailed me. (laughs) (laughs) The good, the bad, and the ugly or what? (laughs) Tries real hard, you know, (laughs) fairly smart, um, lacks a little skill. So, um, yeah, no, he had me down, but then the, the most intriguing part to me and the, the most important part to me that I could ever relate to a young player. And I use this for my teams is I looked over at the dates of those evaluations, seven evaluations in the last year and a half I had played in North America. So I was 29 and 30 years old. Wow. Right. Yeah. So I had no idea and no expectation that any NHL team was watching me, much less writing reports on me at that age. So play every game like someone is watching because you don't know if they are or not. So, so that was true. a lesson for, for me at an older age to, to make sure that I knew. So let me ask you this, cause this is relevant. And we used to talk about this all the time. And I still talk to a lot of guys about it and it's very mixed when you're going to watch a kid yeah. and you're, you know, it's somebody you like, you, you think you maybe want to make a decision on them. Do you let them know that you're coming or no? I, I generally don't. Um, unless it's my, you know, I'm coming back to watch him and I've already watched him and talked to him or, you know, and I, or I may just slip in and, um, and watch him. It's an interesting thing. Do kids overthink that evaluation and say, well, I've got to earn the scholarship tonight. And I don't want to, you know, I I don't want to hurt their team. Number one, by putting too much pressure on what was most likely their best player. Um, but other other times, uh, depending on the kid, uh, I will will tell him I'm coming, and and maybe I'm putting some pressure on him. On yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, we're we... leaning on him to see, hey, can he perform? And so, <laughs> you know, yeah, and you've met both those types of kids, and uh, but you know, I would at the end of the day, you want to put a kid in a in the best position to show the best he has, and so we'll take that you know individually and and see how that goes. Cool. Well, let me ask you this as a question from a, a, a coach's perspective where you guys as the college coach are coming to scout them. So like when I know, like this happened this year with Fershie, I yep. knew Fershie was in Chicago and I said, Hey, you know, these are, these are two guys that I think three guys that are our best players. I think they're going to be good college players. Take a look at them. He's like, all right, I'll watch them. You know, I'll, I'll step in your game and check them out. Well, I went right to those guys because they're also guys who I know right. like to know. Right. But me as a coach, um, 
do you think that it's kind of a case by case basis or should me as a coach, if I know you're coming to watch a guy, should I tell them all? Should I not tell them? Should I go, okay, this kid, I know that you like to know. So I should, I should tell you, but I shouldn't tell you. What, what do you think would be a good advice for a coach who's getting told that there's scouts coming to watch his guys? To, to me, it's a case by case basis. Cause I mean, we've all coached these guys. We know we have overthinkers. We have guys that are blessed with the, you know, ability to not overthink, you know? And so I go, I go case by case on that. And, and oftentimes um, when I go watch teams for the first time, I like to not talk to the coach before the first time I watch him for the year. Cause I want to see who I like first, you know, and I may not, lots of times I'm like, I don't even look down for the whole first period. I just watch the game who is coming out to me. And then at the end of the first, I'm going to look down and say, okay, number 16, number 19, number seven, that's first period. I, I like these guys, maybe make a note or two, watch them again after the game, come talk to you, you know, let you tell me who you, your best players are first and talk. And then I'm going to say, okay, you know, what matches up over here? I did like this guy. Is he as fast as I think he is? Is he as smart as I think he is? Or boy, I miss that guy. Um, and maybe I'm going to have to, as I come back round two to watch your team, um, you know, keep another eye on him or, or why did I miss him and, and figure things out that way. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Well, I, I think that's such good advice for just uh, based upon, I think it's always good to peel back the curtain and for people to really understand what, what goes on in the college recruiting process, because I feel like people just don't, they don't really know how much goes into it. You know, even when I was a player, it was kind of like, okay, they, they just kind of come and watch you play. And if they like you, then they'll take you kind of thing. But like, that's that. what I always used to say is like watching the game is like 10% of my job as an assistant right. coach, you know, 90% of it is building the relationships, not only with the family and the kid that you want to recruit, but building the relationships with people that'll tell you who the players are and building trust with those people. So they'll maybe call you before they call you a Western Michigan <laughs> um, type stuff. Um, so that's, uh, that's good stuff. But speaking right of West, go ahead. Yeah. Let me just interject there. I just want to say that players have to understand that too, that, your coach is going to be asked about you by any potential next level team, whether junior, whether college, they're going to come to the coach first. And I used to tell my players all the time at that level, you know, I, I'm going to give them, I have to be honest with those guys. So you are writing my answer to them by your effort every day, by your, your work ethic. You're telling me what I can tell them. I will not, you know, I can't lie to them because then they're never going to believe me. So players always recognize that your coach is, is the first level of contact and it's up to you what he says. It is not up to him. You are writing the story for him to tell. So make sure that you're doing that on a daily basis. That's so crazy. And it's, it's so funny how everything is so cyclical in the hockey world, but literally I had an NHL scout call me yesterday to ask me about one of the guys I coached right. uh, a few years ago and a guy I trained and he literally didn't ask one hockey question. Yeah. It was, how is he mindset wise? How does he want to keep getting better? Does he want to play in the NHL? Does he say he wants to, you know, what's it, what are his, how athletic is he in the gym? Like, Everything wasn't, there was not one question about him as a hockey player. It was kind of like all these other factors. He already had the picture right. of the hockey player. He wanted kind of more. 
So like, you know, Toph and I are always talking about that. It's so good to have someone in your position. Just, you know, you are writing what I'm going to say about you. I'm not going to lie. I like that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, like that's, I love that. Well, Vex, maybe he just doesn't trust your hockey judgment. Maybe that's why he didn't. You know what? That probably could be true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like it. Well, we we have to talk about, obviously, we got two Western Michigan Broncos on here. And uh, first, the the question that I have for you, I'm sure Vex has some other ones, but I find it really, really cool and really, really interesting, the fact that I looked at your guys' roster that you had at Western, and you had seven players on your team that ended up as Division One assistant coaches. You, know, you look at Scotty Garrow, Derek Schooley, uh, Brent Brecky, Joe Bonnet, uh, Brian Renfrew, Chris Brooks. Um, you Pete guys Wilkinson. are. Well, sorry, Pete Wilkinson. At one okay, point. one I missed. Yeah, yeah, All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but how does that happen? You know, you got a couple head coaches now. You've obviously been at, at, at the highest levels, and you have all these other guys that have done great things from a coaching standpoint, like was there a kind of environment or culture that you had that just breeded people that loved hockey? Like what, can you explain why so many guys ended up coaching at the higher levels? Well, you know, you know, Toph, the, the first answer is what they say. If you can't play, you come. <laughs> so, <laughs> was, no, that's not completely true. There, yeah. There, none of you of, guys played in the NHL. So no, maybe. for sure. But, um, but honestly, the, a big credit goes to our, our coaches, um, you know, Bill Wilkinson and, and Mike Schaefer, as you well know, um, very passionate. And I think they, we had a, a, a great culture of, of people around there and you, you, you know, uh, Schaefer's love of the game. It's infectious. And, you know, I think it just inspires you to, to stay in the game as long as possible and to hold on to it and, and to want to be successful and want to stay in hockey. You know, Andy Murray says it every day. He says there's more good people in hockey than there are jobs in hockey. So it's not easy to stay here. You know, it's not easy to stay in this world uh, and, and have a job and be employed and, and get to do what you love. Um, so you got to love it more than the next guy. You got to work as hard as you can at it every single day and you got to you have to continue to improve. Love that. How were the teams? How were the teams when you played there? We were good. We were, uh, we were top four of the CCHA every, oh, I played three years. Um, so we were top four of the CCHA each year and, and we had good players. Like, uh, my first year we had Mike Eastwood who was on the team, obviously seven hundred games in the national hockey league. Very good player. Keith Jones was my line mate my second year. Um, Keith is a, you know, a legend now. And, and, uh, you know, he's, I think he's probably the best on TV. Um, you know, he played, you know, 700 games in the National Hockey League. Jamal Mares was a freshman when I was a senior. You know, he had 1,000 games in a Stanley Cup. So we had some good, good players. Like Chris Brooks was all, uh, you know, rookie of the year in the CCHA with some really good players in the CCHA back then. Um, so it was a – we had good teams. But it was it was Michigan and Lake Superior State were one and two in the country for three straight years mm-hmm. when I played, it was, you know, juggernauts of, of Jim Dowd and Doug Waite and then Michigan, you know, all six of their defensemen were national hockey league defensemen <laughs> and Brian, Brian Wiseman and uh, Denny Felsner and, and, and David Oliver and Mike, Mike Knubel's on the second line getting 38 goals at Michigan in one year, you know, like, oh. I mean, it was a, it was a buzzsaw of talent on, on both those sides. So, you know, good challenge for us, but a uh, lot high, you know, pretty hard to, finish higher than third in that league. 
Hey, so uh, Shafe used to tell some unreal Keith Jones stories. Said oh he's my. just an absolute legend. Like, what's your best Keith Jones story? Maybe maybe PG or, you know, I don't know if he was an R-rated type guy, but if he was at Western, then probably a good, good chance that he was. But uh, <laughs> what, uh, did anything stick out for you? Because I've, I've heard some beauties from Shafe. Well, jo- Jonesy's a full legend for sure. And he's, uh, <laughs> he, there's a difference between, you know, cocky and confident and Jonesy's confident. I don't think you make it to the highest levels without being confident. That's actually knowing how good you are. Um, and he, he had it, he knew he was going to play in the national hockey league. Um, two things. And he, so he, uh, he graduates and he gets his contract and, you know, I don't want to say the dollar amount on here cause that's his business, but it was, uh, you know, signing bonuses were different back then. There, they weren't, it wasn't a huge amount of money. Right. So Jonesy's got a little bit of money. doesn't know if he's going to play in the national hockey league. He's on a two-way contract. And a week later he comes rolling in to campus. <laughs> he's got a, a Mitsubishi 3000 GT. Rest, oh, sick. Twin turbo. Basically, <laughs> it was all of it, man. You know what I mean? He said it all. He came rolling in. We're like, Jonesy, maybe you want to play a little bit before you buy this thing, you know? And so, of course, you know, he's, ah, don't worry. I'm going to make the National Hockey League. And, and you know, I think uh, he would probably tell you, I think he, he probably took a, a little bit of stuff from us, but more from the vets when he rolled into camp with that the next year, you know? <laughs> that that sure. is, uh, what a sick car, too. That was like my dream car when I was oh, like a little kid. That's uh-huh. hilarious. That was a big deal back then, for sure. Yeah. That's funny. Cole Hain, when I first, when I signed with Boston, the only thing he really said to me, other than like hockey advice, was you got a pretty good truck. Don't waste your money on buying a car your first year. It's like the only thing he said to me, you're right. going to see guys buying cars, buying Escalades. Yes. Don't waste your money. Wait a couple years, see what you're going to make and stuff like that. So for any young guys who are signing a two-way deal and you're not going right to the show, making a schmill that first year, like one injury, you're one injury away from, from you know, bad yeah. things happening. So like definitely right. save your money let's walk through that first contract and see what it looks like as an entry level deal. You make nine twenty five maximum up. That's about $5,000 a day. That's nice. You get sent down to the minors and you're probably in that 75,000 range, which seems like a lot of money to a college kid, but that's about 500 a day. And you're only being paid for six months of the six months of the year as well. So that's zero, you know, I always say in life, we're fighting for the extra zero, right? <laughs> right. I like that. And like that. so, you work hard for that extra zero, but that zero can be taken away on a daily basis in the NHL and you can be set down. And, and so make sure you're spending the, the, the smaller amount of zeros, not the, not, not the one, not more zeros. I like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, you piggyback that career into, I was checking out your hockey DB page. You played yeah. a lot of years of pro hockey and I uh, played a lot of years of pro hockey and, and uh, in, in the minor leagues. And that, that's an absolute grind. Um, you spent a lot of your time in the IHL. Um, you know, what was, what was that experience like for you having dreams of playing in the NHL and and just, you know, getting close, but, but having to grind it out for all those years. You know, it was great. And the old IHL was a a fantastic league. And for people who know the old IHL and and the American hockey league used to both exist at the same time with kind of half the, um, they're similar half the teams in in both leagues. And then, it was confusing fans and they ultimately merged 
to create the, you know, now just the American hockey league, but um, the, the IHL was great. It, it paid very well, much higher than the, the American league back then almost double. And, and we lived it, you know, and they were in great cities. Most of the IHL was in basketball, the teams that had NBAs as well. So they were filling up their arenas on the other half of the year. So, you know, Orlando did, you know, Detroit, Salt Lake city, um, Houston, you know, all these great places to play in really kind of quality, you know, first-class cities. So we flew everywhere, um, stayed in good places. It was, it was a really good situation. Now that's, it's 82 games flying commercial as well. So, it, you know, it, it is a grind. There is no doubt about it. And, and uh, you know, lots of different cities. I know I, I played for San Francisco one year. We had 11-day road trip, seven games, seven different cities. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, the last game, I'll never forget it because it was in Minnesota and we pulled in and there was nothing left in the tank for anyone. And, you know, everybody puts uh, money on the board, you know, for those kind of wins. We used to have segment bonuses back then. So, and that was the end of our segment. If we won, it was pretty good dough and um, minor league money anyway. And so we all put money on the board and, we're getting, I mean, they dropped the puck and we didn't touch the puck. They almost, <laughs> we're, we're getting outshot. We got outshot 54 to 13. I'll never forget this game oh. in my life. And we won five, three. Oh, they probably missed the net with another 35, but they, they were in our, and they'd be in our end so long that they'd overcommit. We go on a two on one and shoot it in the net and then not touch the puck for another five or six minutes and then do the same thing. And we did this five times. Well, we did it four times. We got an empty netter, but it was, uh, it, it was a grind, but a great life. Um, I went to Europe. I signed in, in England, my, my first year over there. And I just planned to play until I wanted to play till I was 35. So four more years, but I was, it's kind of a, it's not a paid vacation, but it is, it's a, it's a paid experience overseas and, um, you know, I, I unfortunately ripped up my wrist that first year. I would have, you know, played, I was probably set to go to Germany the following year and just kind of wanted to work my way around Europe that way. Cool. Very cool. And yeah. then, uh, after, after you were done playing, you decided to become a coach and, uh, started the Russell Stover program out there in Kansas city. What, uh, what led you to there? You know what? That's actually, so my last three years pro, I was a finance major here at Western and my last three years pro, um, each summer I worked at Merrill Lynch. Um, I thought I was going to be a financial advisor. Um, I had two great guys I worked under that um, we were taking care of me. And they said, as soon as you're done playing, we got a job for you. So, you know, I hurt my wrist and, and, you know, I talked to them and they said, absolutely. Um, you know, we'd like you to start. And they gave me a, a date down the road. And so then the the rink called in Kansas city and, and beautiful brand new rink. And they said, uh, we'd like you to be the hockey director. And, I went into the rink. I said, well, once you let me come down for a couple of days of the rink and just watch what goes on. Like I didn't have any idea where the level was at. And a <coughs> youth organization was full, but lots of the coaches were dads that were out there um, in tennis shoes and mittens. And, <laughs> and not to criticize the dads, they were doing the best they could. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know what I was getting into. Um, I was getting into somewhere that needed my help. You know, and so I came back and I, I said to my now wife, then girlfriend, um, I just said, what can you give me two? give me two years to make this hockey thing work? If I can make it work, because I think there's huge potential here. 
there, there was a beautiful rink, like I said, access to ice, um, you know, in, in an area where, where people could certainly afford hockey. And I said, let, let me, let me see, give me two years. Then I went to Merrill Lynch and I talked to those guys and I said, can I, how about two more years? Where is the job still available for me in two more years? And they said, absolutely first. And so there I went, I went into, uh, you know, I was the hockey director. I, I worked at the rink. Um, you know, I, I gave some private lessons and, and I just tried to build it one square at a time. And actually that first year, they had a midget double A team and a midget A team. And I was the coach of the midget single A team because the double A team, a dad, they'd already promised it to the dad and they didn't want to take it away from him. So, but I, anyway, so I started out with nine kids on my single A team. Oh. And I was like, we need, you know, we need more than this for a team. And they're like, oh, okay. And then like third day, we had 12 kids. We had 12 for about, I don't know, a week and a half, two weeks. And then five or six kids showed up one day and they're all like pretty good looking hockey players. And I was like, where did these guys come from? And the guy, and lucky enough, the guys on my team were like, well, is it okay? We just, we like this so much. We brought our friends. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is, this is great. <laughs> sure. They, they didn't, uh, so um, anyway, we kind of built that way. And then the next year they, they, you know, of course made me uh, coach to the double A team, which is our best team in town. Um, and it was a great group of kids. Somebody had done a, uh, the, the dad who had coached had done a really good job with these kids. He was, a, had been a Minnesota guy as well. And, um, had done a good job. So it was a good base there. And these kids, they, we, we worked hard. We worked off the ice every single day. We skated every single day. Um, and we ended up finishing third in the national tournament that year at the double A level. Right. Cool. Pretty nice. Kansas city stars. It was a great group of kids and great group of parents. And, um, so then after that year, trying, I was trying to move my, some of my players on. And I only had, you know, I had about three guys, four guys maybe that could have gone to the either like North American League or somewhere in that, you know. And I started calling my friends and I got a lot of, well, first you're coaching at the double A level. You know, I don't know. These guys probably aren't good enough. And I was like, hey, I know who's a good hockey player. And so you know, I convinced some of my better friends to, to take these guys at least to their tryouts. And a couple of them did end up playing in the North American league. But at the end of the day, I thought I, I have a choice to make. I either have to tell the good kids in Kansas city to move to Chicago or Detroit or Colorado um, to play triple a, or I've got to bring triple a here. So they get to stay home but to do that, we're going to, you know, we're going to have to subsidize it with outside players. So there's not enough good players here to, because otherwise you're not a true triple A team, right? You're just a double A team calling yourself triple A. So I said, what do we need to do that? We need, we need sponsor. We need money. We need to make this affordable for people. So I put a 12 page business proposal together for uh, Scott Ward is his name. They owned uh, Russell Stover at the time. His son, David Ward had played for me on that double A team. Um, was, was graduating, went to Miami, Ohio, played on the club team, but I put this business proposal together and, and asked them for some money and, and, you know, compared it to little Caesars and honey bakes of the world and these kind of things. And he came back to me the next day and said, let's do this. And wow. then, uh, then I, it was, it was on and it, it was, uh, I didn't actually know what I was getting into. I was just trying to provide these kids with an opportunity. And so our first tryout ever that year 
We had 53 players for two teams. We took 37 of them or 36 of them because we left some spots open because we were like, we don't have to take players just to fill up. You, you know, there wasn't enough good players. So had a good first year. Um, the, that year we kept the minor team, all local kids. And, you know, about my sixth year at Russell Stover, we had two different tryouts. We had to cut it off at 360 players. And, you know, we built a reputation of, of doing a decent job and, and improving players. So it was, cool. a, it was a, it was a great thing. It was, I'll tell you, it's, it's a extremely rewarding experience coaching that age group. And I coached with the minor team and the major team, but um, just watching those kids grow, develop as people and then go on to their lives and, and getting the letters and from their parents about how you've influenced them, you know, as a person, way more than a hockey player, we can, we can all make better hockey players. That's kind of the easy part, but instilling work ethic um, for future success, all those kind of things. And then being invited to their weddings and, and getting pictures of their kids. It, it was a real, real fun time in my life for sure. That's really cool. I feel like a lot of, it's interesting that you guys went that route because I get a lot of calls from like, you know, teams from areas kind of like Kansas City, yeah. the Dallas is the world, the Florida is the world, the, you know, the Southern Californies of the world. And they're like, it's basically the same situation you were in where it was like, okay, we have this group, we have this great group and they all feel like they need to leave at 15 and then it just decimates their organization. Um, Cause it's tough to call yourself AAA when your AAA players leave, yes. <laughs> you know? So it's interesting that you went the other route where most of them just kind of do that, but you actually brought the, the kids in and how, like, how, how were you able, let me ask you this. How were you able to, I mean, reputation and doing a good job is obviously 99% of the part of it, but how were you able to grow those numbers from whatever it was, 36 people trying out in year one to, to 360 people trying out in, in, uh, in year six for you? Well, a couple things. Um, we're I was lucky enough that some very good coaches ended up getting hurt and that I played with in Kansas City. So Jason Herter started with me down there. Oh, um, no way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. A guy named Mike Akins, who's one of my best friends in the world. Mike's been a head coach in the USHL tw two different occasions. Akins coached me in Chicago. Yeah, and a, and a great coach out in the North American League, big-time success. So, um, But at the end of the day, we just worked hard. So Jason and I, mainly Jason, um, we went to every North American League camp we could. We volunteered to be on the benches. We went to every USHL team we could, uh, camp we could. And the, so we were looking at all the players that were being cut from there and that didn't already have great spots. Um, yeah. You know, because like, we weren't going to try to recruit a kid off the Chicago Mission. They have a great program. We weren't going to recruit a kid out of Edina High School in Minnesota. They have a great program. But – a kid from Austin, Minnesota, who may be the best player and the most motivated player. Maybe we can combine him with a kid from North Carolina at the time. Now they have a pretty good thing going, but, and then, you know, maybe a kid from Alaska and we, we piece those things together and we found all these kids. And then our biggest advocates were, were our second year. We had four families from Minnesota that came down and the kids, you know, they, they, they didn't make the elite league in Minnesota. And so they wanted another a chance to play at a high level. So they came down. And then when they went back to Minnesota, they ended up advancing to the national camp out of Minnesota. Wow. And they hadn't even been considered for the elite league. And then so basically those parents said, what happened to your kid? 
Wow, mm. they got better, and that was the most important thing. Huh? And then so <laughs> then we, started getting, we started getting lots of calls from Minnesota. You know, like our the parents were our best advocates, our best sellers. Sure. Obviously, aside from you know Jason Herter, you know, continuing just to pound the pavement and find um, players everywhere. And then, of course, you, like I do now, you rely on your network of friends, and uh, people trusted. Uh, you know, that we were going to do the right thing with the kids down there. We're going to make them do the right thing as far as we literally, we built our program down there on taking excuses away. So we had built a, we had a 6,000 square foot area upstairs in our gym. So down one side is 35 yards of turf in the back. We put a thousand foot synthetic ice area. Uh, We had 2000 square foot weight room and we had a cardio area and some speed bags. So if you weren't, Fast enough, we had turf. If you're not strong enough, our weight room. You don't shoot pucks hard enough, we've got synthetic ice right here. We also had a, a 45 by 45 rink in the back that we could use from 6 p.m. on every single night of our rink to shoot pucks or work on your skills or do whatever. And and we didn't just let guys go in there. We had organized programs, and, and it was practice immediately after school, uh, workout after that. And we had a 10 p.m. curfew seven days a week the entire season for our program and, and kids, you know, they're high school kids. So they'd look at you like, (laughs) you know, and we just said, Hey, listen, you got time to be great at hockey and you got time to be great at school. But within this program, your social life, as far as outside this team is going to suffer. And our most important part of this program is our billet families. And so that 10 o'clock curfew gave them a security blanket of, we know where he's going to be at. We don't have to worry. We'll take this kid in. And we know he's here for a reason and a goal. And it's to get better. It's not to party or, or, or get in trouble or do any of those things. So we set that hard and, and we lost a few kids from the, on that. And, but what we thought is he doesn't, he's not the kid we want anyway. Yeah. You know, we, he's not the kid. We, we want a kid who wants to work. We want a kid who wants to be here for, to get better. And we're going to supply you with everything we can to aid in that. And if you take advantage of it, you're going to go on. I think we ended up with either 51 or 52 division one players in six years. So, and not, and again, they they had good starts. Like we took products that were, you know, lots of times you just had to add strength, maybe add work ethic. Um, You know, a lot of Minnesota kids are great skaters and have great instincts and, hadn't necessarily learned how to work yet or compete harder. So we decided to add some things that they were missing for sure. Sounds like you just ran an unbelievable program. And I remember the first time we, we had talked in Chicago about your time at Russell Stover's, I immediately was like, man, we got to get you on the podcast because like, that's such an amazing story. Like kind of starting that program, you know, on your own, obviously you had help and doing those things. And I think a big thing that, that people don't think about you know, when they think about these, these um, right now we're talking about like triple A, high level double A guys that right. say they want to move on. You know, for me, getting through to the kids that to be successful at probably pretty much anything in life, um, unless you're, you know, uh, the Jenners and you're just successful because you're hot. But anyone else, <laughs> like, you've got to sacrifice something. So, like, I like that you guys had had a curfew. I like that you held them very accountable because if you I think I said this to a kid yesterday, if you're going to come to me and tell me, Jeff, I want to play in the USHL, Jeff, I want to play D1. I'm going to tell you it's going to take sacrifice and you need to decide 
what are you okay sacrificing? Because if you want to be really good at hockey, yeah, maybe your social life will have to sacrifice a little. It doesn't mean you got to not see your friends, you know, but like you're going to have to go to bed early. You're going to have to take care of, so you're going to sacrifice there. Or you want to be the prom king? All right, well, now hockey's probably going to sacrifice. And now you're not going to make it in hockey, but you're going to be Mr. Popular at school. So like uh, the kids listening and parents listening, I think a great way to get into your kid's head is just like, if you want to be good at anything, there's going to be things that you will need to sacrifice. So decide what you want to be good at. And then you're going to see there's going to be a little bit of give and take. There, there's no doubt, Vex, you said a wall there. And, and I always say to be great at anything, hockey, you know, mathematics, whatever you want to do to be the best takes a little slice of crazy. You've got to chase it. It does. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got, to, you've got to chase it harder than the next guy. You've got to pass people. If you're not already number one, you've got to work harder than the next guy who's also working hard because you've got to pass people. And if you're number one, you better be wary because Lavecchio's out there. He's chasing you like a crazed dog, right? He's trying to pass you. So uh, it takes a little slice of crazy to be great for sure. Absolutely. I, well, we had Gabe Polsky on our podcast a couple of weeks ago and he did that film in search of greatness and where he interviewed Wayne Gretzky and Jerry Rice and Pele and did all this research about why the best were great. And that was one of the things that was, was constant between them is like, they were maniacal. Oh. Like th- there was just this ever loving, crazy thirst to get better and, and crazy competitiveness too, that like they would not be denied. And that is, that is a, a trait that is so hard to have because that's an everyday thing. That's not a 364 days a year thing. That's a freaking 365 days a year thing. And I'm not saying you have to be maniacal and crazy for 365 days a year, but just to what you guys are talking about, there's going to be things that, you know, you're going to have to give up. There's going to be things you 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 know, you're going to have to sacrifice to be able to get there. And, uh, and again, like, it's just that, that, that maniacal i just always want to outwork that next person i'm not going to let anything or anyone deny me in my goal of getting to where i want to get to and if you have that you still might not get there there's only one greatest of all time in in every every sport there's only a certain amount of spots in the nhl a certain amount of spots division one hockey major junior whatever but the things that you'll learn on that maniacal putting everything you have into that journey you will be a much better person later on in whatever it is you choose to do than if you didn't have that passion for, for whatever it is growing up. There's no doubt. I, I had a quick Pavel Dadzuk story for you. So I was lucky oh, enough. Yes. Lucky Name enough, drop. <laughs> lucky enough to coach Pavel my first year in Detroit. And, you know, he's hurt for our first 17 ish, maybe 20 games. And then he came back and, and I mean, every single day in practice, he was phenomenal. And, doing things that the other NHLers were shaking their heads at every single day. But what stands out to me is Jan- it was in January and we went to on a nine day road trip out West and we played that, uh, you know, all the Western teams and LA's and we ended up in Phoenix. And as we came back, we went three and one, which is hard to do on that road trip. And Pavel at this time is about 38 years old, maybe 37. Right. So we get back about three, 30, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, obviously the next day is off. We had just won in overtime in Arizona. Um, I slept for a little while and I went into the rink. I had some video to do because, you know, again, in national hockey, you play every day, every other day. So we were, we were prepared for the next game. And um, 
I went in, I stared at the computer screen long enough. I thought, hey, I'm going to get a little workout in. And I go into the weight room. Here's Pavel in the weight room. And I'm like, oh, say, sorry, Pav. I'll, you know, I'll go. No, Pat, 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 come in. You plenty of room. <laughs> so now I'm in there and Pavel is crushing a leg workout. Vex, I would dare you to do right now. He's got, <laughs> he's got three-way lunges going. He's got box jumps going. He's got squatting. It is unbelievable what this guy is doing. And I was a lunatic like you, Vex, when I played. And, and I, I, honestly, this is Jan- January in the NHL, and he's 37, 38 years old. Anyway, it's, I'm usually, like I said, I got my old guy 30, 40-minute workout going. But now I can't. I came in after him. I'm way too proud to leave before him, right? (laughs) I don't know how long he was in there before me. So an hour and 15 minutes later, I see him grabbing his towel and starting to walk out. So now, of course, I time it to wrap up at the same time. And I said, you know, I said, Pav, I I mean, day off, man. Aren't you like tired from the road trip? And, And he had just come back in those four games. He had seven points, was 100% 100% our best player, not even close. Pet, need to be better. Only way to be better, work harder. 37 years old, gentlemen, slice of crazy. Ugh. That's greatness. And he's already, is- he's already done what he's done in the game. He's already made tens of millions of dollars. And he's, there's a reason. There's a, re- there's a reason. <laughs> they work harder. The, the, I think the most misused and term is talented when you describe someone as talented i say this to when i go to the usa hockey things and they're 15 or 16 i say if i say you're talented am i complimenting you and they're like yeah oh yeah yeah it's a compliment i said okay if you're 25 years old and i say you're talented am i complimenting you or insulting you and they all sit there they don't know what i'm talking about and i said well is nick lidstrom was he great or was he talented? They said, great. And I said, was Pavel Dadzuk great or talented? Great. Okay. Talented at some point means you're, you're underperforming your abilities. Yeah. You're, you've underachieved your level of what you can be. Greatness is you've maximized it. That's a combination of ability and work ethic. And if you don't have the two, You'll never succeed at the highest level that you can succeed at. How do I maximize my abilities? Not everybody can play in the, in the NBA. Not everybody can play in the NHL. But what is your highest level you can play at? That's what we need to do with work ethic and ability. Combine those two and see where we can get. Not say, oh, I'm talented enough to do it, but I don't have the will to do it. So That's, that's amazing. Drop. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I literally put out a tweet like 20 minutes before we got on this. And I swear on my life, you can look at it. I literally said, I maximized my abilities, like those exact words. And, and I think that every coach, every strength coach, every trainer, like that is your goal. It's it, not everyone is good enough innately to play in the NHL or play D1, but it doesn't matter. It's about, like we've said, the journey, learning to sacrifice, learning how to be successful, all these different things with the end goal being getting as good as you possibly can, maximizing every ounce of ability in your body so that you hit your 100% ceiling. And then, you know, whether you make it or not, if you're an absolute bender when you start, 
and you wind up playing double A by peewees and that's the highest you get, amazing. You just learned so many skills over the course of those years that are going to translate to later in life. And that's what sports are all about for the vast majority of people, learning life lessons so that later you're going to, you're going to do more. You're going to give more. You're going to be more successful. You're going to know how to sacrifice all these important things. Stop laughing over there, Cornell. Right? Yeah, the give more, be more in there. <laughs> Sorry, that's just, what I was laughing at. <laughs> I, I, you couldn't see me, but I was laughing too. It's awesome. <laughs> but I at, do the like same, it though. at the same time too, Vex, like we, I think we always talk about the life lessons and that's the reason, like that's, you're right. You're a hundred percent right. But like, also let's not forget that the players that are playing in the NHL have that work ethic and have that desire too. So like, yeah, we can, we can sit here on a soapbox and talk about the life lessons, but let's talk about reality too. If you want to get somewhere and you have dreams of playing at these levels, that's what it takes. You have to work. You have to get better. You have to surround yourself with people that are going to challenge you. And, and like, even as a coach, right? Like first you became a better coach after being in that room with Pavel Datsuk that day. And that's something that you can impart on all the players that you'll coach for the rest of the time you're, you're as a coach. And so like, it's just, it's, yes, it's the life lessons when you put all that into it, but also like, let's not, let's not sugarcoat the fact that we coach a lot of players that want to get to those levels too. And that's what it takes. No doubt. doubt. And it's, it, it, it gives you, I know all three of us, you know, worked extremely hard in, in, in our career and, and, you know, Tof, I know you had more talent than Vex and I combined for sure. And Wait, that's is that a is that a good thing or a bad thing? You're talking about talent is <laughs> not a good thing. So I, I think you just dissed me. <laughs> how about this? You had more ability um, with the puck than both of us combined. <laughs> is that fair enough to say? I still feel like I'm getting dissed here, but no, that's no, no. okay. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, you you maximize what you do. Vex and I, we chased it through through working physically as hard as we could. I know that. And, and I know you worked as hard as you could. Tof. So all three of us could retire at the end of our career with no regrets. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm perfectly, I know that I did everything in my power to make the national hockey league. I didn't make it through whatever reason at the end of the day, it wasn't good enough. I could say, well, that guy, I was better than that guy I was better than that guy. At the end of the day, I wasn't, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't whatever. I wasn't good enough at the end of the day or I would have made it. So, but I can, I can retire and say with no regrets. I know you guys can both do the same. You can retire from hockey and leave it with no regrets saying, I should have done this. I could have done this to be better. You know, that's all you can really ask at the end of the day. Work as hard as you can. If you, if you become a division one player, if you become a pro player, if you become an NHL player, if you become a club hockey player, have you, can you, quit hockey tomorrow and say, or your career ends tomorrow and say, did I give it everything I had? Can I, can I stop playing with no regrets? I didn't leave anything on the table. It's a satisfying feeling. It is. And I mean, not playing in the NHL isn't satisfying, but knowing that you gave everything you had chasing that I can live with that. Yeah. It's like, it's like John Wooden and his definition of success. John Wooden's definition, definition of success is, is peace of mind. Right. You know, it's not the level you got to. It's not the championships. The guy won 10 national championships in 12 years. Like, yeah, he's successful. 
but he talks about success. It's peace of mind. I know that when I look at myself in the mirror, I gave it everything I had today. That is true success. And I, I tell it to everybody that I can. And it's just, it's so true. Like, it's just, there's so many factors that lead into the end result that are out of your control. <laughs> so many. And if you can find a way to look at the journey and find success in the journey and, and what you put into it, like you're just talking about, it's just such a powerful thing, you know, it's, and it's great. It's so great that you guys are, are, are involved in the game at the levels you're involved at. And, and I certainly was involved at that level, but it is, you get to teach them to love the process at that level. You can teach them to love the process of working hard, of improving, of changing, it's a great level to be at. And, and those levels are lucky to have you guys to inspire people, inspire those young kids to, to maximize and have no regrets later and, and be satisfied. It's pretty great. And, well, and to bring that full circle, like real quickly, like, you know, we talked about that. We talked about like when, when you're, when you at the end of your career can look back and say, you know what, whether I made it or I didn't, or I, I reached my goals or I didn't, whatever exceeded them. Like, being able to have that peace of mind is amazing. And because we put in all that work, because we were found a way to sacrifice, we learned so much on the journey. And now look at you first. Like you started, started a triple A program out of nothing and made it extremely successful, helped so many kids move on. You get offered a job at Merrill Lynch the day you retire. You were in a, you coach in the NHL. You're an associate head coach of a D1 program. Tof coaches, plays pro coaches at his alma mater. Now he started this hockey think tank company that's helping tens of thousands of people. And I'm just the side of beefcake that's super jacked and has a, <laughs> has a successful, as a successful training company, but it's, it's literally all because of the lessons that we learned in our hockey careers of how to keep pushing the envelope, how to keep getting better, how to do this, how to do that. And we learned all those things from the game of hockey and now, you know, we're, we're successful and two or three out of us are Bronco beefcakes and one of <laughs> us is a Cornell big red. <laughs> well said. Oh man, I am. Uh, I feel, I feel left out of the loop right now. <laughs> well, first we've had you on here, but I, I did, I did have a couple more questions that, sure. that I wanted to ask you uh, before we, before we let you go. Um, you've had the chance to work with a couple really, really awesome head coaches in, in Andy Murray and Jeff Blaschel. And I would imagine they're pretty different <laughs> in, in their approach to things. Um, but what, what was it like working with those two guys? I know you worked with Blash at Western and then obviously with Detroit and, and now you're with Andy at Western again. Um, what, what have you learned from those two that you can take with you in, in your coaching journey? Well, Tofa, I have been lucky for sure. And I was lucky enough to play under some great coaches as well. And I think every head coach, every assistant coach, every teammate writes a, writes a section of, of your coaching book. Yeah. And so, you know, Andy and Jeff have written big sections in my book for sure. And, and, you know, they are grow They're completely different yet, you know, successful characteristics carry over from person to person, you know, and, and I would say from, from Andy's point of view, he's taught me the gift of being over-prepared and he is, he is as prepared as any coaches I've ever seen. Um, Lots of, we do things, lots of things sometimes that we don't use, but the ideas will never be surprised. Our players will never be surprised. And the players don't get all that information, but as coaches, we're prepared for everything behind the scenes. And I think that's what we owe. Andy's taught me this for sure, that we owe our players that effort to make sure that we're as prepared as possible 
so that not we give them the best chance to, to win that game or be successful in what they're doing. So I've certainly sold that from Andy and, and Blash is, Blash is unique because he's a world-class communicator. Um, he's also hyper-organized. He, I've stolen lots from him, but the, the best thing I think I've stolen from Blash is, is a, his ability to listen to players. It, it's, it's fascinating. I, I think it's, it's a, it's, and I do it way better now than when I first started coaching with him. I know this for sure. The players can also make you better. So he, he has an ability to, to not just uh, coach and, and talk to, at players, but to listen to them as well. Their input is important and it, it makes them be on your side, want to play for you. And it also makes you a better coach if you're willing to listen as we ask our players to listen. And Blash is a great listener and that's why he's constantly improving. So it's an impressive quality he has. Um, he stays in charge but he's also a great listener to improve himself from that. And so that's a, a thing I've stolen from Jeff Blasso for sure. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> listening as coaches. I, we probably don't do a good enough job of that, but <laughs> honestly, it's probably the, the, the best characteristic you can have. And it goes back to, I mean, it's so interesting that you that worded it the way you did, like how much better can you be as a coach just by shutting up? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. And, and what, what did you guys learn? So uh, my first, well, my only year at Miami of Ohio uh, was your guys' first year at Western. And you took a, a team that wasn't very good and took them in one year to the CCHA championship game. We're sorry we beat you, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, actually funny story about that first. So I got on the bench maybe five, six times during the year. Well, like you were talking about when, uh, Trags or, or Brex was out recruiting. And yeah, one yeah. of the games I got down on the bench was, uh, at Western Michigan. And so I'm standing there. It's the national anthem. You'll get a kick out of this and, uh, it's going on. And all of a sudden I hear a tap because the benches are right next to each other. Yeah, yeah. The tap on the glass and it's Rob Facca. Who oh, is yeah. One of the best characters in the game, just unreal guy. And uh, he, he looks over at me and I said, you know, I give him a head nod. Hey, what's going on? And he looks down. Yeah. Like, okay. And he's like looking down, like, Hey, you should look down. So I looked down at him and he wanted to show me his new shoes, he these shiny new <laughs> Rob Facca shoes. And then he gives me the eyebrows, you know, the, hey, pretty good. Right. <laughs> and I just started bursting out laughing. Yeah. It's silent as the national anthem is going, but uh, he was, he, that must've been a fun year for, for you guys. But I wanted to ask you, cause you guys took a team that wasn't great and you took them to the CCHA championship in one year. Um, to be able to change the culture that quickly. Um, and, and I would imagine, you know, you had good players because you can't make a championship game without having good players. Sure. But at the same time, changing that culture like that, how did you guys do it? And what did you guys do to be able to accomplish something like that? Well, the, the first thing we were, we were very lucky to have good leadership in the room. Mm -hmm. Slater was our captain. And uh, the group had just graduated had not prioritized hockey. They had, they wanted the off ice college experience more. And Ian had, I think he was, he, I know we, we inherited a group that was sick of losing and they were willing to change. They wanted change. They thirsted for change. So that made our job somewhat easier. Um, we added two very, well, we added several very good players, but, we got Ballacy and Birschbach, our leading scorers for the next four years. Those were our first two scholarships. We had two scholarships left. 
that's what we gave out the summer as we took the job. Um, and we just looked at each other and Blash said, well, we're the, essentially the worst team in the country the year before. We could only add two players. He said, we have to make our players, this group, better. It's the only way we have a chance. So every day before practice, we had skill sessions. Um, Blash would take the goalies from the blue line down. And I had the defenseman one day, the forwards the next, defenseman one day, the forwards the next. For a half hour, every single day, we just habits, skills, habits, skills. That did lots of things. It, it, number one, they knew that we were very invested in making them better. I think that got them on our side. Uh, number two, I think it gave everybody on that team confidence that were, they were getting better. Number three, we lucked out. And I'll say this, we had a very light schedule at the start of that year. So we had some early success. <laughs> yeah. And then when you have early success, they're like, they, the buy-in factor comes through the roof, right? So we're going to work out harder. We're going to, um, you know, practice a little harder. Everything matters. We brought that in there. And again, it, we couldn't have done it without coaches talk about it all the time. It's, it's who handles the meeting after the meeting, right? We go into the room and we talk, we say things, and then the next person to talk is one of the players. Is he saying, yep, we got to listen to that. Is he buying in? We had Ian Slater to handle the meeting after the meeting. And that was an important part of success for us that year, for sure. Probably the most important. I just, it's funny. I, I talk about the meeting after the meeting with every team building team that I do this with. And, and I tell them that that if you want to have success as a group, that's the most important thing. How you guys talk to each other when you're away from the rink and what you choose to emphasize as a group, that, that will determine how successful you'll be from a win and loss standpoint and how fun, how much fun you're going to have and what your experience is going to be. Because as a coach, if you don't have that leadership that's pulling on the same rope as you and they're, you know, not agreeing with you behind the scenes or they're, they're snippy with their teammates or whatever, like you're, you're toast zero, no, like no literally chance. zero chance to, to win if you don't have that, that, that internal leadership. And so, I mean, I think that's really interesting that you guys had that and uh, it was a huge part of your success. hundred percent. It was. Vax, do you, I see, took do him. you see that in times too, when in, in your career? Yeah. Well, I mean, dude, uh, totally. And at Western, like when I first came in there, it was, it, it kind of hurt me to hear that because when I first came to Western, all the seniors and juniors, juniors were that way. Sophomores were kind of stuck in the middle, but all the seniors for the most part, they, it was a very bad culture. They were super into partying, super into that. Luckily my freshman class, we had some absolutely unbelievable leaders and characters. And I still remember the meeting in the dorms that I held with my whole freshman class. And I said, we're not going to let this happen. Like, I don't yeah. care if they don't like me. I don't care if they don't like you. Like the, we had 10 guys as a freshman class. So luckily we had the vast majority of guys and we just said, we're not going to stand for this. We'll fight every guy on the team until they start doing things our way. You ended and up start, fighting a few guys too, didn't you? Or at least yeah, one I mean, guy I, I know. Well, I, <laughs> who? I'm not going to say it on the podcast. I'll tell you uh, that. Well, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh yeah. I actually, that was my next year as a captain. A guy tried to quit on the team and I had to fight him in his apartment. <laughs> I was like, Hey, you're not quitting. And, uh, I popped both his shoulders out of place when I threw him into the wall, but, um, you know, like so that, you made him quit then. No, no. Then he came back. He tried to quit. I popped the shoulders out. He came back. Um, he was injured for a month, but then he came <laughs> that's back. what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, man, leader's important. But what I was going to say is I took Ian Slater on his visit and I remember thinking just like, this is the kind of kid we need here. I wound up leaving the next year because I signed and left early. But like, I was like, this is a type of person that we need to have at this university. So it's really, really cool to hear. And I heard that he was just like Mr. Captain, unbelievable. So, I mean, very cool to hear that I could see that just from hanging out with him for two days. And then he winds up being a massive catalyst to that, that championship team. So very cool. Yeah, for sure. Well, first we got one more question for you. Cause, uh, um, you got the chance to coach with uh, the Red Wings in Detroit and you had a great story about Pavel Datsuk. I wanted to know what your biggest learning experience was um, as a coach at that level, being able to being able to, to be around the best players in the world um, for the amount of time that you were there. Well, I tell you, it was it was lots of great things. And, and I think I blew it already by, by telling you the, the ability to listen to the players. But I think that's that's really the thing I. I took away from that experience is, is being able to coach the best players in the world. Number one, listen to them. You know, they're, they're better offensive or better players than, than I've ever been. So I can learn from them. But um, as a coach, when you get in there, you got to make sure that you are hyper-organized for them to listen. You have to make sure that you're not wasting anyone's time. Time is short in the National Hockey League. You play a game against a different opponent every other day for six months. Edit what you have. Even I, I brought this back to college for sure. If you can do a meeting in three clips rather than eight, do it in three. Never waste people's time. Yeah. Make it, if you're going to show them video, make it impactful video. If you're going to talk to them about something, make sure it's important. Don't meet to meet. Don't waste their time. Those are things that you learn when you coach somebody that makes way more money than you. (laughs) (laughs) These are millionaires. So if you're calling a meeting, make sure it's impactful. They'll listen to you. If you start wasting their time with, with non-important or non-impactful video or non-impactful meetings, they're going to tune you out and they're going to stop listening to you. Give them good reasons to listen. Make sure you're organized, work hard enough behind the scenes that the only thing that they see is the highest quality thing that you have to offer. I think that's something that I for sure made sure that I've, I've learned there, made sure I brought it back to Western, tighten everything up, edit yourself before you go to the players. Unreal. I, that, the right there, I'm, I'm going to write that as soon as we hang up. Make sure what they see is the highest quality something. I already <laughs> Good thing is Tom's to- recording this. I can't hear yeah. to you. Tom to- takes all the notes and then I just steal them. So that's perfect. perfect. Uh, it, it is funny though. I mean, I remember sitting in the coach's room at Cornell and, you know, you go through all this work to prepare for a team and, and all that kind of stuff. And then you're sitting there with 20 clips and you're like, Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, got to get this down to five. <laughs> and it's, so you go and you agonize over those 20 clips and you're like, okay, which, which five are the ones that I got to show? And you're so right. I'll give you a quick example though. So for every NHL game, the pre-scout. So if I, I, some of the assistant coaches do the, some of the pre-scouting. So if we're going to play Boston on a Wednesday. I would have watched Boston's previous four games that they played and the last two games versus the Red Wings that we played versus them. All those clips, all those tendencies down to a maximum of 11 clips to show in a meeting that is limited to five minutes. We never had a meeting over five minutes because we figured they weren't listening anyway after that. Right. (laughs) So we just did, you know, 10, 12 hours of work 
for potentially a five, you know, five minute meeting uh, to crank it out. And you did that 82 times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's what it comes down to. And, and now for me, it was great because I, I couldn't watch enough. What does that do? Uh, San Jose's got a different style than Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's got a different style than the, the Rangers, the, than, than Washington. For me, it was taught me the league, number one. It, it, it allowed me to steal different ideas, different thoughts, different ways of playing from all these great coaches around the league, for sure. Bring new ideas to Blash that maybe we could you know, improve our team with if I saw a repeated pattern being successful. So it, for me, it was like a master class of coaching that I got to watch every day and just steal all the best things from. It was great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I remember, so Vex, uh, I went to Detroit. I can't even remember why I went to Detroit, but I stayed with NAR. And uh, so NAR brought me to the rink uh, as you guys were going through your stuff. And I think we showed up at 7.15. And yeah. first you were done with your workout. <laughs> when we got in there, we were shooting the breeze. Like, you know, the, the work ethic that goes into I mean, I mean, just, just think about that 12 hours of work for a five minute meeting. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it is, it's a great job, but it is a hard job. And, and, uh, there's so much more that goes into coaching that meets the eye. And, uh, but part of that work ethic is the reason why you've been so successful and, and why you're here where you are today. So, you know, we, we really appreciate you coming on. You any, any other big plans for, for the summer? I know you got a couple hockey camps that you're trying to do. Um, so what, what kind of have stuff you have going on? Well, hopefully you'll have going on, I should say. Right. No, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting world. We're all locked down right now. And we, we want everyone to stay safe for sure. I, I generally have ran first roller hockey now since I was 17 years old. So I, I coach all ages and, and, and all abilities of hockey uh, player every summer. I'm, I'm going to run a camp down in Kansas city this year out in Breckenridge and one here in Kalamazoo. So I'm excited to be involved still with youth players um, you know, the five, six, seven year olds, all the way up to the elite guys as well. So, uh, I'm excited. I love coaching those guys and, and it's, uh, it's a fun experience for me to, to make sure one, I give back and, and uh, to make sure that I'm, I'm helping with the next generation of players. Anybody looking for a camp, I'll tell you how, you know, that you're going to get your money's worth out of a camp first you, before we started recording said, I get just as much joy helping a five-year-old learn how to stop on their left foot as I do with working with elite players. In my head, I went, you're an absolute psycho. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I I love that. I've said on this podcast many a time that I respect anyone that can work with the youngest players because just for me, like I don't have that patience. I like to work with the older guys. That's just me. But for somebody who's coached Pavel Datsuk, (laughs) he gets just as much joy teaching a five-year-old to stop on his left foot. That's a guy you want to go to his hockey camp. So anybody out there in those areas, definitely uh, Google them and check them out. Good stuff. Well, thanks for coming on first. Best of luck. Stay healthy, stay safe, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing you rink at uh, sometime pretty soon. Sounds good. Enjoy the guys. Thanks. Thank you.